listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 89 is Dusty Wright. He started in the late 80s in a band called Bastards of Execution. He's released six albums as a solo artist and one under the name Giant Fingers. You're right now listening to the song Karma from his second album, 2000's Dust. We're going to be discussing Pardon My Love from an as-yet-unreleased album, then go to Man in the Mirror from his current album, 2018's Gliding Toward Oblivion, and look back to his band Giant Fingers, an unreleased version from around 2003 of the classic High Flying Bird, and we'll conclude by listening to Art at the Speed of Life by his band The Dusty Diamonds, recorded for compilation in, I believe, 1994. For more information, please visit DustyWright.com. For more on this podcast, visit NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. If you enjoy what we're doing, Please contribute at patreon.com slash music. So I will have played a little bit of Karma, the version from your second solo album, Dust, from 2000. But you said that that song dates back a while to the bastards of execution from the late 80s, early 90s. Can you trace briefly the journey from that point to the most recent stuff? We're going to talk about Pardon My Love from an album that hasn't even come out yet. Yeah, you know, I think uh, with any singer, songwriter, or person that was in and around New York in the 80s, there was so much music and art and culture and theater and performance art that if you didn't have a project, you really weren't fulfilling your destiny. And I think there was a lot of migration to the city back then because it was really affordable. And so there was this giant migration. I think in part was the mythology of CBGBs, the New York Dolls, the whole happening New York scene had happened a half a decade previous to when I moved there. As a kid who was in Ohio in high school and college, I would read the New York Rocker, and if you know the publication. But at one point, it was kind of the Bible of the, of the New York music scene. You had the Village Voice and the New York Rocker. The New York Rocker was primarily just music, where the Village Voice was a little bit of everything plus a very heavy political slant. I just poured through the New York Rocker whenever I had an opportunity. And when I was finally in college, I had the opportunity to visit some friends who had just graduated from school, and I was smitten. I just thought, this is the greatest city I've ever seen. And I'd been to L.A., and I'd been to Chicago and some other cities, big cities. But for me, it resonated with my soul, I guess. And even though it was seedy and tough and, you know, it was coming out of the depression that Lindsay had, and you had Mary Koch, who was just starting to get things happening. So uh, the migration of like, you know, plunking around and not serious bands in Ohio and, you know, and I, and I was growing up in a time in, in Akron, Ohio, where we had, we'd go see Devo play in the clubs. There were the dead boys. There was the best radio station, allegedly in America was WMMS in Cleveland. So they played the talking heads. They played the psychedelic furs. They played Roxy music. They played T-Rex. They played David Bowie and they broke a lot of the acts. They broke Mott the Hoople. They broke Bruce Springsteen, the band. So this was the diet of music that I grew up with. And the New York scene was like the next extension of that scene in Ohio, which was very small and insulated. You had Tin Huey, The Waitresses, Chai Pig, The Numbers Band, this great music explosion. But it was a very small, insulated scene and everyone kind of knew each other. Maybe there were 50 to 100 kids, you know, kind of like three venues you could go to and then you'd go up to cleveland to the agora and you'd see the dead boys play or devo who were branching out and becoming bigger and bigger and mark mothersbaugh tells the great story of they'd go to new york and play max's kansas city then they'd come back to akron they'd be stone cold broke they couldn't even afford you know a single joint 
But in New York, they were being championed by John Lennon and David Bowie and Brian Eno. And coming from this small, insulated, vibey thing in Akron and, and getting those accolades in New York was incredibly intoxicating. So for me, migrating to New York just seemed a natural extension of the scene that had been created in Akron. And I don't know if your listeners will remember, there was an album called The Stiff. Stiff Records did a compilation, the Akron compilation, that had a scratch and sniff tire on the front. And all these bands, except for Devo, was on that compilation. Labels were sending A&R people into Akron. I didn't have the guts to start my own band for whatever reasons, even though I was way into the bands and the scene of that. And I was a DJ in college. So I'd have those bands come into my college radio station and play their music on air and stuff. Bands like Teacher's Pet, the Bizarros, who had signed to Mercury Records, Hammer Damage Band. So all the bands you're listing and the influences that you've got, why among that has a constant theme in your music seem to be this cowboy at heart, alt cowpunk thing in particular yeah. among you know all those very different sounding bands? Certainly my first band, The Bastards, had that influence with kind of the punk ethos partially due to the fact that I wasn't a very skilled songwriter or guitarist at that stage. I was still developing and learning. But there was something that uh, I think maybe in my past, one of my grandparents was from Tennessee, so I would listen to the, I got to listen to Hillbilly music. And I think that influences you at a young age without even realizing it. And there's something that I always liked about the simplicity of the music, but the delivery of the lyric and the economy of scale that I really enjoyed. You know, early Elvis Presley was as punk as you could get. And then he got into his country leanings. Hank Williams, to me, was like the ultimate punk rocker with his lyrics, certainly, you know, celebrating the little man. Johnny Cash. You know, it was interesting. I was into Johnny Cash before he became cool when Rick Rubin took him on and stripped down his sound to just a man and a guitar. But those early Johnny Cash records, I'd hear that stuff and my uncle would play it. And my uncle used to play me actually I remember specifically hearing Creedence Clearwater Revival for the first time. And to me, that was really cool because I thought, wow, they're marrying this country ethos with amazing songwriting and economy of song. And I wasn't even aware that they were based in San Francisco. I thought they were Southerners. Fogarty and those guys were doing swamp rock and roots rock out of San Francisco during the days of the psychedelia. Plus, it kind of carried over into the Bastards of Execution anyway. My name, Dusty, became, was a nickname given from the birth of that band. My guitarist, Jay, would always break his string in the middle of the set. And he would go, my buddy Dusty's going to sing a Johnny Cash song for you now, or a country song. And it became kind of a goof that stuck with me. And I thought, wow, I really like this cowpunk thing. And then cowpunk started to explode from Austin and San Francisco, the Long Riders, the True Believers, Alejandro Escovito and his whole thing. The green on red. And then something else happened. I got transferred to L.A. in 1985, and it was really big out there. And I'd go to the Golden Palomino two, three times a week, and I would see Dwight Yoakam, Lone Justice, Husker Du playing with Dwight Yoakam. You know, there was all these great Los Lobos in the early days. X was starting to experiment with their cowpunk thing, you know, with the, with the knitters. Maybe it was easier for me to play, and I just thought, wow, there's just a lot more to say with that ethos and that songwriting thing. Chris Christofferson I started getting into, and then I really started to listen to D uh, Dylan on a much more cerebral level, and listening to Nashville Skyline and John Wesley Harding and those records, and the band, you know, and you go, wow, okay, so for me, the band is and will remain kind of the forefathers of the Americana movement. 
part of my love to me was I've always done a cover of Long Black Veil. And I thought, why don't I write my own version of Long Black Veil? So part of my love is the songwriter me trying to do that version of Long Black Veil.
So you've got basically a murder ballad sort of thing, or the justice after the murder sort of thing. Be hung in the morning, you know, it's a very, very traditional, with some very nice, sparse instrumentation. It's cello, right? Yeah, it's cello. Matt from Giant Fingers, who I've played with off and on in Giant Fingers. You know, Giant Fingers is this ongoing music project. It's basically when Matt isn't playing in one of his string quartets or duos or trios that he has. He'll call me up and say, look, I got some free dates. Should we do a Giant's Finger gig? And, you know, it was basically taking my whole cowboy, metaphysical cowboy Americana thing and using a cellist as opposed to a second guitarist. And sometimes it would just be me on guitar, Matt on cello and a djembe player and really stripping it down more. That song was actually recorded for the new record, Gliding Towards Oblivion. But in playback, I thought Gliding Towards Oblivion is kind of the third installation in this middle-aged guy, singer-songwriter guy's life about the meaning of life and love and the pursuit of happiness in this world, this swirling vortex of life. You know, I had tragedy of losing my father and brother within a year of each other. That was incredibly traumatic. This music was incredibly cathartic to help me through the process. While I loved the song, and it was one of the first songs I wrote for the new record, when I started piecing the album together, because I wanted it to flow like side one, one through five songs, side two, six through ten songs, or 11 if you had Mellow Yellow, it didn't fit thematically for me. And I thought, well, I've always wanted to do a protest record, so I'm going to save it for the next record, which really was going to be this record that just got released was just going to be protest music. But I started writing and getting into this metaphysical ruminations as I is the press release so sad. Since you bring it up, so you felt like Mellow Yellow was the thing to, to cap that off? Well, not really. Not on an album. In hindsight, Mellow Yellow was really just a bonus track sure. on the digital side. Never intended for the vinyl version, because I'm still holding out hope that I don't have to pay for vinyl. <laughs> the cost of vinyl being what it is, and I'm a huge vinyl freak, and I love getting albums, getting new you know, 180 gram albums that I probably own already that are in my mother's basement. But Gliding Towards Oblivion is clearly an album experience start to finish. The opening song and the closing song kind of open the ruminations with this final song closing it. Mellow Yellow doesn't really fit thematically within that world other than maybe the bliss of when we're dead. It's Mellow Yellow time. All right. So we'll get to that with our second song. Let's talk more about the particular decisions on Pardon My Love. Is this probably the final mix or because this is being punted down the road to the next thing, might there be a version with three extra keyboards on it that'll be coming out? Or is this, this is the song? That's not the final mix. You have a very cool early mix of the song as it okay. would be. I just added Caitlin Bemnitz vocals to it because when we do it live, I love her kind of ethereal vocals. I kind of wanted that voice that you hear on the Pink Floyd track on, um, Great gig in the sky is that, you know, yeah, not, not as no. grandiose or in your face, but a little subtler, like the ghost of the wailing woman who is watching the execution of her lover and her protector. The song is really about a guy who protects a woman from a husband who's a wife beater. You know, what could be more political than that? Right. Protecting somebody and is falsely imprisoned for protecting her from this guy who has been smacking her around. So Caitlin's vocal to me really adds a, an additional element of empathy and a gravitas to the song. Dylan does that a lot. He'll record a song and then he'll re-record it. And if you go see him live, it sounds you know like Masters of War sounds nothing like it's recorded in its original take, right? 
does that with a lot of his material. I sometimes will do that. I'll change lyrics up on stage and Caitlin's like, wait a minute, I don't remember that lyric line. I'm like, yeah, you know, I just thought of it. Sorry, I should have given you notes before the gig. Well, it also depends what you consider to be the song. You know, so you've got, for instance, some very melodic cello riffs here, just right at the beginning, at the end of your intro, this focused little riff. That sounds like a melody to me. It sounds like even if you did a new version 20 years from now, probably, again, depending on how you think of the song, something would be doing that. If not the cello, then something else would be echoing that because that becomes, even though that was not part of the way it was written, I assume that you just set him going and he does whatever he wants. Does that <laughs> seem accurate? Well, no, I think I definitely have melody lines in my head. And, and what's great about playing with Matt, oftentimes play without another vocalist. And because I'm a baritone, basso profundo vocalist, that's my range. The subtleties in a live performance of the nuances of my voice aren't always heard. And a cello can help reinforce the tonal qualities of my voice, as well as offer a counter to my voice where if Caitlin's not there to sing in an upper register. So I think those melodies are inherent. And Matt is very good at picking out the melodic nature of my lyric line, even though I might not be as sophisticated a songwriter to say, well, I wanted to go from an augmented seven to this. This note slides into that note. Not having minor training in music, sometimes I don't think the way Matt will think formally or classically as to what that melody, and he may actually educate me on, let's try this vocally. Have you thought about sliding the note from here to here? or sustaining the note and not sliding it, just sustain the note. I love the give and take of not locking a musician into a certain thing. I'm all about hooks for sure, because I mean, you know, I'm a child of the 60s with music and Beatles and Rolling Stones, you know, guitar hooks, cello hooks, bass hooks, even drum hooks. I'm really into that because I think that helps perpetuate the evergreen nature of a song. I can see that you put a lot of effort into the subtleties in the arrangement here are like in the Count the Hours to the Pardon My Love, and you have this, I assume, keyboard or a different guitar that comes on on top of that, and then it's answered by the cello or answered by the cello with the tremolo guitar. They pardon my love. It's a guitar part. There are no keyboards, interestingly enough, but I have effects pedals that give keyboard textures to my guitar. Yeah, I assume just for the recording, that you're not doing this live, but just hang me for my love it has to be the hook. So let's emphasize that with a little and do a little call and response thing just to kind of frame that little bit and make it stand out. Because especially, you know, if it's just a small number of people playing together, it's easy for everything to run together. But here's the other thing that's interesting, Mark, is when John Bendis, my live guitarist, and it was interesting with this record because John's an incredible, I call him like a Mark Rebo meets Nels Klein guitarist, very nuanced and textured, but plays without a pick and it's very smooth and ethereal and he plays at a lower volume. And, you know, we're all about matching the tones of our guitars when we play out live. If I'm going to play this Gretsch, he's going to play his Johnny A. Gibson. Or if he plays his Strat, I might play a 12-string acoustic. So... It's not going to sound exactly like the record. And John doesn't like mimicking the guitar lines that I come up with sometimes. He'll come up with a different counter melody. So with this album, I was so insulated with this record anyway, actually the last three, I played most of the guitar myself. I just was hearing things. 
and I was hearing little hooks and things. And John just cracks up because he's a much better guitarist than I am as a lead guitarist. He goes, I just have no way of writing that. I don't know how you came up with that hook. And I guess I go back to one of my favorite hooks of all times is two notes for what it's worth. That little tremolo intro that Neil Young does, or maybe it's Stephen Stills. Heavy verb and trem. And I just go, wow. And we got into an argument once about, go, he'll sometimes say, well, don't play the hook so much. I go, well, John, if you listen to For What It's Worth and you love the song too, that hook is all the way through the song. <laughs> I don't think there's a passage where you don't hear that hook. And it kind of tethers the whole thing becomes that earworm but yeah you're right live i may not get the same sound that i recorded with because sometimes i'll forget like well what pedal did i actually use on that what was the setting on that pedal now if i'm using a memory man or something it's almost impossible unless you tick mark the settings on a memory man what you actually used and that's kind of fun too i think because i'm not certainly subscribing to the world of rush where everything is letter perfect and the fans expect the drum fill to be the same drum fill as it was on the record yeah it's just a matter of thinking of films in the same way that you think of vocal lines they tend to be simple they tend to be you just want a distinctive sound i've actually been thinking about you know and going back and playing with a smaller ensemble or even solo things like i've never come to a satisfactory solution to this but maybe with digital technology there is but an alternative to having the harmonica that you strap to your neck. Like a kazoo is really what I'm thinking of in terms of I want to be able to finish my vocal line and then I want to have the guitar, the lead guitar that is not there, go down, down, you know, but I want to just do that with my mouth and make it not sound either like I'm singing la la or make it sound like a kazoo, which sounds stupid. <laughs> so, you know, it's an electric kazoo or a MIDI transformer, you know, some kind of uh, voice to pitch to ethereal sound box, I guess is what I'm, I'm thinking about. I've used the kazoo on Mellow Yellow, you know, and it's great. You know, and it's really fun and effective and people smile and they go, yeah, I get it. Okay. So that equivalent for a dramatic song, like I at least can't think of anything besides the harmonica that you could pull that off. Well, it's a little harder. Like, you know, I know some amazing harmonica players that play chromatic harmonica. So, yeah, they can pull it off. One of the guys I know, Will get, uh, Gallison, he plays with Steely Dan. So his harmonica playing is exactly what you would expect it to be. You heard it on the record. Maybe he's doubling up the keyboard sound on the harmonica. It's tremendous. I think with harmonica player, the, the way I play harmonica in the school of Neil Young and Dylan, it's a lot more forgiving. So sometimes I don't sweat it. Sometimes, you know, you, I amaze myself going, wow, you know, that was a great riff that I came up with in the middle of the show on a song. I got to remember that. Let's listen to just near the end of the song. One of the more surprising little bits in the arrangement is when you do Pardon My Love a couple times and you turn it major. Pardon my love. Pardon my love. Pardon my love. Yeah, I do it as well in the second verse as well. You want the audience to sit up and take notice, right? Ray Davies, to me, does it better than anyone. He'll go full step in a lot of his songs. You learn a song, you go, okay, I know there's going to be a key change. Maybe from the middle eight out or before or maybe with a bridge. I just think those little hooks, again, it's a hook. Make the listener sit up and notice. And I'm glad you pointed that out because those are things sometimes I just take for granted. The band will sit up and notice and they'll like it. Because it keeps them on their toes and they're not just pedaling along, right? 
Well, in this case, it's another way of having a little more tension. I mean, usually you think of the major chord is where there's release, but here, because the whole thing is minor and dirgy, then, oh, it's really, it's cut. No, it's back down. <laughs> you know, so. I guess subconsciously, yeah, I did that, but I, consciously, I don't think I was looking at it that way, but yeah. I don't know. The songs, sometimes they just happen. I have a new song that I'm working on for this record, and I, I was going to write it just in the key of E minor, just keep it in the key of E minor, you know, like the old blues guys would do it. And it's the, actually the title song. And then I thought, well, maybe there should be resolve. Maybe I should go to the four chord or the five chord or both. And I was trying to find a happy medium. Like, you know, you're expecting it to stay here. And then when you do go to the resolution, it's not the resolution you expect in a pentatonic scale, right? You have this, I'm going to say punk influence, even though there's nothing punk about it, but a little bit of psychedelia, you know, a little more eclectic approach than just a country rocker is that you like to end with these atmospheric things. So in the song we're about to hear, Man in the Mirror, there's this swirly guitar pedal effect that is spinning out of control. Here, you've got the wind chimes. You actually have to drag wind chimes in. Right. You know, if you're going to ask somebody on stage, could you just play a little bit at the beginning and then just sit there <laughs> for three minutes and then go a little at the end? Like, they're not going to do that. They're going to be goofing around. They're going to switch to something else. Now, have you ever known a musician to be able to sit still through a whole song and just play one part? There's no way. And that's kind of fun, you know, when you do that, and you'll go like, well, what happened to the wind chimes in the beginning and the end of that song? Pardon my love. Well, they're there. You just didn't hear them because the percussionist decided he was just going to wank off on everything else. I think that's a really important thing. Like when you notice music that really moves you and the arrangements of songs that really move you. And John and I talk about this all the time. Like the bass doesn't have to start there. The bass can start on the second verse or even the, the second chorus. You know, why are we locked into this where the band's coming in on the one and we're all in the one? Like, let's build some tension in the song. And I think that's really fun for the audience. You know, let's build towards something. Let's take them on a journey. Let's maybe just end with a drummer then, like with the wind chimes on Pardon My Love. Or Man in the Mirror, where you're, you know, that nuanced textured effect that I had on the guitar. I was like, whoa, that's cool. You know, and I was like, John, do you have anything for the song? He goes, nah, I think you nailed it. You know, you came up with a part that I wouldn't have thought of. I would have thought of this. And he played his thing. He goes, but it doesn't fit the tone of what you've recorded. It may work live. I love to obviously tone and textures. You know, I have to cite another influence for tone and texture, the feelies. I love how they layer their guitars. And you see them live and they just layer the buzz of just a, a 335, just incessant rhythm, and then the angular riffs on a Fender Telecaster and the tonal qualities of that. Well, yeah, and then burying that into you know the fact that they have shaker or something on just about everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, another percussion-drummer combo. That's a really neat hook. I was listening back to my record the other day in the car because my wife hadn't heard it, so I played it for her, and I hadn't listened to the whole thing. And a friend was like, who was listening with us said, you know, there's kind of a David Crosby vibe on some of these songs. If only I could remember my name. That's a record I played a lot. And those are not always really formed songs like you're used to hearing him sing. But there was a vibe on that record that is very ethereal and very, very cool. I'm not comparing my record to that record, by the way. That's to me is like a masterpiece record. But you absorb influences when you write and record music. And then when you hear it back, you go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that was so influential in my sound and a guitar sound or a tone or maybe even a song pattern. 
Well, let's get a song from the new album, Gliding Towards Oblivion, out there. Man in the Mirror is the one you picked. You said this started as a song about Trump and became more generalized about narcissism. Do you want to give a brief intro before we play it in full, and then we'll talk more about it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as I stated earlier, Mark, you know, I had decided I was going to do a protest album. And so when I started The Man in the Mirror, it was a protest song, and it was about narcissism. And I thought, you know, regardless of your stripes, left, right, middle, I think in politics or in listening to people, sometimes we need to have a little bit more humility. Hubris is great, I think. So I just started thinking about narcissism and the classic example of narcissism, looking yourself in the mirror all the time and not seeing anything around you and having a very myopic view. That made me take a wider macro look. We all are narcissists to a certain extent. And as an artist, certainly, I think to get on stage and perform for people and feeling like your ego has to share something with them that they haven't heard before. That's a lot of narcissism involved with that. So in looking at this thing, I then skewed it towards looking at a narcissist who may overlook what love means to them and missing that opportunity because they were so inward at that particular point in their life that they maybe missed the great love of their life because of it. And maybe it's the narcissism of job that they're in or a promotion that they were looking for or maybe the grass is always greener. But yeah, the genesis of the song became one subject, then it widened out to include, I think, all of us. I think the narcissism in all of us. The man in the mirror knew how it would end. Never surrender and always pretend But he couldn't stop all of the lies Knew all along alone he would die Sat by his window and stared Waiting for the call, a call he could not share Looked down on the street, all alone The man in the mirror knew how it would end Never surrender and always pretend But he couldn't stop all of the lies Knew all along alone he would die He still remembered her face Every frown sadly he could trace Every tear that fell without grace Man in the mirror Man in the mirror
when she left, she left him cold. No fanfare, nothing he could hold. She damned his soul forever. The man in the mirror knew how it would end. Man in the mirror, never surrender and always pretend. In the mirror, but he couldn't stop all of the lies. Man in the mirror, knew all along alone he would man die. In the mirror, knew all along alone he must man die. Alone he would die. Alone he would die. Alone. So yes, the ghost of Christmas past essentially shows up. <laughs> it's yeah. reflecting all that says he knew all alone. Alone he would die. Like I don't think Trump is reflective enough to actually think. <laughs> And he probably won't. I'm sure he'll be beloved by a certain, you know, he's not going to die alone, but that's not typical. Yeah, that's an interesting line. I just thought, how is that going to play? Because initially when I had the song, I had different choruses for each chorus. And one of my friends like, look, man, that is such a good line. That's got to be part of the hook. I'm like, really? It's not too heavy handed? He goes, no. Nah. My friend Martin, who did the recording, he's a recording engineer who I, who I work with, and we throw a lot of back and forth at each other. Sometimes you can be afraid to maybe go that dark, but that, you know what? That line is really how I try to live life. Is like, we're going to die alone, right? We came in alone, we're going to die alone. And ultimately, that moment of reflection, we've heard the stories, my life zoomed in front of my eyes. What was my life all about? Well, and I like the... The point of view in terms of time, that is, you know, it's like you can only count somebody happy when they're dead. That's a statement that's necessarily talking about other people. <laughs> but if you think of yourself in those terms to try to take this stoic, whatever, bird's eye view, as like you're talking about, and this character who is not a good stoic, who is not fulfilling any particular wisdom tradition here, he knew all along alone he would die. I often wonder the motivation of what people do. What is their motivation? How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to re be remembered as somebody who is trying to lift up their fellow man? Even if it's in a simple thing of holding the door for somebody and letting that person in or out, right? Or waiting for somebody who's trying to pull out in a hurry. You know, just those little small moments and living in New York, you know, where you're just crushed with people. Sometimes we all lose the humanity, the civility that we should offer everyone. How do I help somebody out other than just giving them a dollar if they're begging? You know, is it buying them a meal? How do you want to be remembered as a human being? The narcissism. And again, I think we can all be narcissists from time to time. I think our egos, you know, I think it's hotwired to maybe help protect us and coddle us from things that we may be uncomfortable with. But again, this is a very heavy album of reflection and ruminations. I think there's part of me is in that song. You know, like I can break it down and say, well, I can see that person's a narcissist. I've seen narcissism in my own family and how it was difficult to deal with. And I've heard my wife give me grief about my actions a time ago. Okay, I'm being selfish here. How do I want my kids to remember me? 
was dad selfish and he was always focused on writing music all the time and didn't pay any attention to us. You know, you read these stories of these great artists who cloister themselves away from the rest of the world. That was their purpose. I'm not judging if it's a good or bad thing, but again, at the end of the day, that line sums it up, I think. Knew all along alone he must die, right? At the end of the day, you saw, you know, Todd Rundgren had that great line, knowledge comes with death's release. So one of the other lines in here, waiting for the call, a call he could not share. Yeah. Well, I think the share is sharing with himself, hearing the truth. That's what that line means to me. Like, you know, some people don't want to face the truth. And if you have a very strong individual in your life, somebody who really loves you, and they speak the truth to you, and you don't want to share that with anyone for whatever reasons, like you don't want to be called out. That was a little bit of a dig at P.O.T., well, no, and I like that. That, again, reflects the kind of dual mind that you're talking about. You know, it's something he can't share, but he's waiting for it anyway. There's got to be, again, this might not <laughs> accurately describe Trump, but when you're imagining yourself in the position of narcissist, then you're thinking of it self-reflectively. I don't think you do it. When you're a real narcissist, you don't think of the consequences. Right, right, exactly. So you wouldn't be waiting for the call. You wouldn't already know that you would die. You know, the, the narcissist is almost more of a, a caricature than you're spelling out here. You've got a deeper character here. I try to find the humanity in everything. You try to find the humanity. Like, at what point do you have that, oh, wow, moment where you go, okay, I, mi- I missed that. I missed that in myself. Why was I afraid to confront the truth? Why are any of us afraid to confront the truth? Yeah, we, we're going to die sucks. We don't know what lies on the other side unless we're so locked into our spirituality, we're convinced we're coming back as a something or you know, our reward is in heaven or whatever your belief system is. It's not a judgment on the belief system, but more of like, again, some people don't want to confront the truth. And it could be the truth of something heinous that happened to you in your, in your life. You know, people are victimized by bullies or by predators, sexual or intellectual or whatever it may be, or physically Oftentimes, people are afraid. You know, the Me Too movement. Look, it took some very strong-willed individuals to bring all of this to the surface. And it was kind of a confluence of everything, right? The Bill Cosby trial, Harvey Weinstein, all these things. At some point, critical mass is reached. The karma wheel will finally find its apex and the floodgates open. So I love having lyrics that are open-ended so they allow for multiple interpretations as well. Sure. Well, and let's talk more about the tone and the instrumentation and your arrangement choices here. So it seems very similar, you know, very much could be on the same album as the first song we talked about. More percussion. We've got actual drum kit here. You got fairly prominent bongos that are jumping out to emphasize some of these things. I think David Crosby is a very good way of describing it. I've played the birds here without you live in several lineups. And so that era always comes to mind of this slightly spacey minor key, even the way that you seem in both in all three of these songs that we're going to talk about the role of the bass. It's not just a low rumbly thing. It's a pointy melodic, sometimes shunted off to one speaker, but it's doing some of the melodic work here. On that, I give credit to Anton who plays bass with me. He's played in giant fingers as well. And Anton is really a guitarist first and a bass player second. I kind of coaxed him years ago into playing the bass and, you know, he's a big fan of Paul McCartney, and you want to talk about melodic bass lines. And I always tease him, I'm like, you should be playing a Hoffner bass. But I think we're looking at two guitars, bass, and drums, which seems to be kind of my major focus on recording oftentimes without keyboards, sometimes with some keyboard lines. Probably not, though. What sounds can you get? You know, Lou Reed was always big on tone and finding great tone because he wrote very simple melodies, right? But it was all about tone and texture with Lou. 
So with a song like this, I tend to look at what's the bass going to do on this. And it's a very frenetic pace, right? The song, it's uplifting melodically, but then adding elements like Howie's congas, you know, it just gives it a different element that to me is more interesting sonically than just playing a typical drum beat. Now, I will say those drums that you think are real, I program those drums, but we got very good samples and that I credit Brandon on finding my mixing engineer and he's also like he's like having a producer in the helm as well he's a very very smart guy and Brandon Wild is his name he played bass on a couple of the tracks finding instrumentation and where they sit tonally where do those instruments sit in the spectrum of the tone I'm always big about tone what amp am I using if I'm playing a 12 string do I want that 12 string to be super clean like a Roger McGuinn with a lot of compression and right, you know, the notes are just evenly, you know, Tom Petty? Or do I want to be a little muddier like a bird song with Crosby, right? Whereas the songs, how are you placing the textures of those instruments? And they're all stringed instruments, so more of a challenge, right? My voice is down here, basso profundo, baritone. A guitar line, typically I'll find something that sits a little bit higher, or as high as it can be in the register without not being too annoying. And that might be a guitar solo or something that I treat with an effect. Sometimes I'll play an acoustic Taylor guitar through an effects pedal board and try to come up with things. Science of the knowing, the sonic choices, I'll sometimes put down a bunch of guitars and just go, that's too much, and then just start parsing them off. And Brandon might say, well, I like that part right there. Let's just ISO that part, because that guitar part is interesting. Yeah, so it's, of course, interesting, like you were talking about the Feely setup where you've got your acoustic and then you've got an electric going over that. In this, I just want to play a little bit right near the beginning where you're using a second strumming acoustic, but it's just EQ'd differently to thicken things out. The man in the mirror knew how it would end. Never surrender and always pretend. But he couldn't stop all of the lies. That's a 12-string. That's an acoustic 12-string. So that's strums, just strumming the major, the one and the three. Giving that, that's, to me, is like a keyboard fill. So you could have an organ there doing the same thing, but it's not going to have the same dynamic tension, I think. Because I love the sound of the 12-string and how it resonates in the air, You know, especially in an open chord. Where in the process would you decide on that lead guitar sound, which I guess is a ring modulator, is that right? Absolutely. It's a happy accident playing around, just going, okay, again, looking at where each instrument is sitting, where each guitar is going to sit in the track. Does that work sonically? Oftentimes, I'm not as sophisticated as an engineer. I'll say, well, let's look at the dynamic range of the song and the megahertz, and we're going to roll the bass and we'll roll off the top end. I'll give it the ear test. How does it sound on my Genelec speakers, which are tremendous mixing speakers, I have to say? Where does it sit for me? And I'll turn it really low. Brandon will send me a mix, and I'll turn it down really low, and I'll go, eh, the guitar may be a pinch too loud, that ring-modulated guitar. It may be a pinch too loud, or I need to move it just another three degrees to the right or to the left to where it sits and it doesn't conflict with the 12-string, which may be at 10 and 2. Where are you, not only EQing, but where are you placing the song in the mix? Is the voice is down the middle? Sometimes I might put the voice maybe a smidge to the left with a background vocal to the right a smidge. Maybe the shaker is way right and the tambourine is way left. Or like you said, 
there's two acoustic guitars. One's just mimicking the other one. They're EQ'd separately, but they're just placed parallel in the mix, left and right. It thickens it if it's rhythmically precise enough, <laughs> but then it's another potential source of rhythmic confusion. You're creating tension. You know, look, look at the Grateful Dead and what Bob Weir would play. He would create great tension with his chords and Phil's melodic playing, right? Phil's a really melodic bass player. And I go, wow, they're always creating interesting textures that are disruptive, but they work harmonically, right? They sit and they work. And you listen to the American Beauty and Workman's Dead, a lot of acoustic instruments. Well, there was an album the other day I was listening to. I was listening to a, a Who song. Pete Townsend used acoustic guitars in some of my favorite songs, Magic Bus. The whole intro with the claves is an acoustic guitar, like a Gibson guitar he's banging on. And it's just epic sounding. Some of those things, like that ring modulator tone, that kind of decision ends up being made just in the mixing process because you know some lead part that has been recorded isn't standing out significantly or just the song needs more character. So it just ends up being, especially with digitally now that you can just play with these things after the fact in ridiculous ways, like... By adding an effect that extreme, you're just completely throwing it out of whatever place it would have been in the mix before. I don't know if it's actually adding an upper octave, but that's certainly the effect that it's having, that it's you know way more trebly than it would have been if you just turned that effect off. Yeah, you know, I don't think I consciously set out to say I'm going to use a ring modulator on this guitar. I had a guitar part that I wanted to hear. And just sonically and, and going through things, I just thought, well, that's an interesting sound. Sometimes I'll play with the song and I'll record the guitar lead line 10 different times, 10 different ways. And I think that's what's cool about recording things when you have the ability to record them on your own or you can add things after you've got the basic tracks done and you can sit and play. And I have a pretty cool home recording studio with some great toys. Well, let's introduce the third song, which I assume is entirely home recorded, right? This High Flying Bird, this early version of that? No, actually, the basic parts of that song were recorded in a studio. The vocals I slaved over a home studio... And then I did a different version with Queen Esther, where I re-recorded my vocals. But there was kind of a junkyard dog kind of vibe to that great song uh, that was introduced to me by a guy named Mark Lonergan, who played with Band of Susans. Right, you said this is originally written by Billy Ed Wheeler from the 60s, been covered a lot of time, Jefferson Airplane, Richie Havens. I give it that kind of Americana, cosmic Americana vibe, Matt on cello, me trying to find some interesting textures to the song. I do want to release it in the near future. I'll re-record the vocals again, I suspect. Maybe Queen Esther will be on it, maybe not. I kind of like doing it alone sometimes, you know? Sure, I like the double-track vocals here. All right, well, let's play it in full. Blues. 
So we picked something for this slot because I wanted something that wasn't quite so current that we could talk about the shape of your career. But this is very similar in some ways. Tonally, this could be on the same album with both of the previous songs, despite the fact that it is a cover tune. So this is around, what, 2003 or something? I played it probably before that as well until we finally recorded it. But I always try to include cover songs. I've got a new version of Bad Moon Rising, which is very different than what we're used to hearing kind of pastoral. But yeah, again, picking covers, not going to do them better than the original. I'm not going to do it better than the Jefferson Airplane in my mind. So how do I make it different? How do I give it my spin? 
and feel comfortable doing it in my style. I just don't think that there's certain songs that you cannot do the originals unless you do them differently, unless you take a woman's song and you're the male vocal or vice versa. For instance, I do Essence by Lucinda Williams as a co-vocal with Caitlin. We do it faster than she does. And it's a cool version. So for me, it's like, do I enjoy playing the cover differently? And will the audience like it? And, you know, I guess that's on the audience. Most people aren't going to know the song anyway, really. Maybe us, because we're musicians. I didn't know this song. And given, again, some of the other things that we were playing that are originals, but still have a lot of are channeling the old style country themes and things like it wouldn't surprise me if this was an original, let's say that. And then you can see, well, I mean, I'm hearing at least four guitars on here that you got the acoustic and then you've got your arpeggio and the lead melody in the right. And then this drone effect one in the left. It's the same kind of immersive. This is why I was thinking this was a, a home recorded one. And also in particular because of the interesting choices in the mix that you've got these double track vocals. You've got the bass is, I think, hard left. It's a very Baroque sounding. I wouldn't expect if I took this into a studio that they would mix the bass that way in any way. <laughs> No, hell no. <laughs> and uh, that was a choice that David Lee and I made, and Dave mixed that record. Okay. I need to mix Giant Fingers, that album. So, you know, we again, we were looking like, all right, well, how does this sound? You know, let's push this somewhere else. And again, does it pass my ear test? And for me, sometimes it's just passing my ear test, not worrying about what anyone else thinks. So, yeah, you're not supposed to go hard, right? Those are the old, easy, cheap ways to make a mono track sound stereo, right? Hard pan the bass and Paul's vocal here and John's guitar and vocal there, you know? Yeah. I wanted to give it that old vibey sixties thing, little cheese on it perhaps, but still have a vibe. So do you want to say a little more about just this overall progression, you know, between your various band efforts? My first solo was 97 dusty, Wright, The debut that I recorded in London. All right. So you were doing giant fingers after that. Yeah. That's the record that I cut with David Ogilvy in London had money from my music publishing deal and spent most of it recording an album in London. <laughs> but I'd always had bands on the side anyway, the Wright Brothers, but the Dusty Wright album, I think Giant Fingers band project, Dust was pretty much a band project, the second album. The third album, Eleven, was definitely a band project because everything was cut in the studio pretty much live with the core band. So when I got into these trilogy albums, If We Never, Caterwauling Towards a Light and then Gliding Towards Oblivion, where I really became insulated and really was like, all right, I'm going to do these things without too much interference or input from my fellow musicians who I play with live and what have you. So that would have been 2011, I guess. Okay. You know, and I was listening through all these albums kind of in a row to try to see what the overall shape was here. I mean, one of the obvious things seems to be that you gain more confidence in your voice or something that you have more, more of your older tunes or have a, a female lead vocalist or something to, is that just a creative choice or it really has this been a matter of your voice has been maturing over time and you're feeling better about it? Yeah, I think, you know, you take voice lessons, you get better, you get more comfortable. You know, one of my vocal coaches is like, you should really be singing lower than you're singing. You're basso profundo. And I'm like, I had no idea. Unless because you haven't done proper vocal training. You get better playing guitar with better guitar players around and you start practicing more. But with your voice, it's finding your own voice. And oftentimes, young songwriters try to sound like other people and not themselves. Right out of the box, if you sound like PJ Harvey, you go, all right, she's got her voice at age 17. She figured it out. That's her voice, right? Miley Cyrus found her voice. You find your voice and you just go with it. But for me, it was a little bit more arduous and slow moving and having the confidence to even want to release music. So when I became more insulated, 
And when I play live, it's much easier because, you know, punk bands is much different because you're trying to shout over the speaker so people can hear you while the buzz behind you is kind of drowns out your vocals anyway. But when you get into a more reflective, introspective singer-songwriter thing, you become more aware of what your voice is. And then finding your voice, when you do, you go, okay, that's my range. These are my tools I've been given. So back in the, the Bastards of Execution days, was it basically the same lineup? You're singing, although shouting more, and writing the songs, or was it a multi-songwriter? Jay and I, the guitarist, would trade off and on. Definitely we were worshiping at the altar of Lou Reed and some of his noisier stuff. And it just happened to be really punky, grungy, you know, two buzzing guitars, me on Telecaster and him on uh, Strat, same amps, cranking, and, you know, playing all these crazy East Village staples and CBGBs and Limelight and all these places. And it was a lot of volume and having fun with it. It was a little bit more tongue in cheek because there were those moments Jay would break his string and then I would do a country song. So, you know. That ethos of punk, I think, was a little bit more fun, unless you were really politically kick-ass punk band and you were really diving into the politics of the day. But for us, it was the noise aesthetic. I'm not saying noise like Sonic Youth noise, which were really nuanced texture, three guitars really working and creating a push-and-pull tension or mogwai or something like that, but more of a grungy thing, you know, a throwback, you know, maybe a little crazy horse. Where Neil was really, you know, that kind of angry, Jay's guitar was kind of that angry, angular guitar playing style. And your movement from that band to that breaking up, having your first solo album, 1997, but then these various side projects with the Dusty Diamonds and the, the Wright Brothers you mentioned. Can you characterize a little what was driving some of these decisions? Is it just different creative partners that you're running into here and there that you want to capture that and have a gig under that name? Or has it been trying different things from a business perspective to see what's going to hit? Or has it all been sort of equally effective slash ineffective as far as that goes? I think it was given the opportunity to work with different artists. And initially, the Dusty Diamonds was kind of my homage to the Jefferson Airplane. So the male-female vocal thing, three guitar players. Very folk, psychedelic folk rock was very, very focused on that thing. And I thought for sure we'd get signed and we didn't. And we were very close to getting signed. And the frustration you face after, you know, you put all that work into it for two or three years and you don't get signed, people kind of drift apart and you start the next thing, which became more ensconced in the country rock, alt country thing. Because, you know, Wilco and I mean, uh, Uncle Tupelo was happening and a lot of those types of bands. And I thought, well, we're already, already, I'm already doing that anyway some of the material I'm writing. So that became kind of the next phase in finding new players who kind of felt the same way musically. But at the end of the day, I guess I'm really a singer-songwriter. So I think these last three albums reflect all of those styles in various songs that I perform. There's the all-country vibe of some songs, and there's a folk rock vibe in some songs, and there's a punky ethos in other songs. Hopefully the instrumentation and the, the tonal quality and guitar quality and lyrical quality bind it all together. And we haven't even mentioned, like on your second album, Dust, which is extra long, there are a number of just straight up instrumental tunes. Dust to me was going to be a theatrical project and uh, like a real theater piece. And I saw it as a narrative with the damsel in distress and the bad guy and the hero and the instrumental passages. I started to work on those with Les Warner, who was the drummer in the cult. And he and I started recording all these great instrumental tracks. And I thought, wow, they're really cool. How do I make them work? They're really the glue, the, the segues between the songs. So I really started to piece that together. And I thought, yeah, you know, this is kind of like the imaginary Western movie. 
And maybe it's a really interesting theatrical presentation. Well, so it's interesting that you could have that concept and import some of these older songs like Karma that we heard at the beginning and what we're going to end with. So you have a version of Speed of Life on Dust. The version we're actually going to hear is a Dusty Diamonds version, Art at the Speed of Life. You said it was on this Ron English tribute album, something? Ron English, the artist who I met years ago in New York. And if you don't know his art, shame on you. If you're into vinyl toy collecting, he's the one of the masters like Gary Baseman. But Ron English's art itself sells for $60,000 a painting. And Ron, I met years ago, and I would play some of his art openings with my punk bands and stuff. He had gotten some grant money, and he took some of the grant money and said, I'm going to do a tribute album to myself. And I made it my friends' bands. And Ron was good friends with Gibby, the butthole surfers. They'd gone to Texas together, University of Texas. And he asked some artists, he asked me as well, if I would contribute something. I said, well, I'd like to make it a little bit more generic and not just about you. It'll be a thinly veiled, but yeah. And I came up with this kind of like, what are all artists trying to seek? Fame and fortune and narcissism. Again, I guess there's a thread there. So I did a version or mix for Ron's album, English 101, which I think is, you can still find it on his website, propaganda.com. I liked the song so much, I thought, gosh, I, I got to get it on dust because I think it works within the contextual frameworks of the narrative that I'm sharing. Yeah, well, I thought it was good to end here to make sure we had a representative of one of these where it's a female lead vocal here. Like I've written some recently for you know a woman in my band to sing and was specifically trying to play with that. It's not just the, like, oh, let's just try this song that I've been singing by myself and just have her sing it. Like it was specifically, can I capture the female perspective or something like that? Is there any thought? Of that sort, when you're deciding who's going to sing what, or is it really just, yeah, what sounds good in what range? I thought it just sounded, I love Victoria's voice. I thought she was very cool. She had kind of a hippie ethos vibe that I loved. I just thought she sounded better. Again, it was kind of a little bit of that Jefferson Airplane thing. Like, you know, Paul is a cool voice, but Grace's voice was cooler, and Marty's voice is even cooler. So I just thought that Victoria's voice delivered the song better. Victoria Cuoco? I don't even know if she's doing music anymore. I don't know. She was going to go to law school and some other things. But for the time period, she was great. And I had I loved working with her. I just thought she had just a vibe and an energy and a vocal quality that I really liked. And she had kind of that timeless vocal quality. It wasn't trying to sound like anyone else. And I think I do like this version a little better than the one on Dust. I mean, even just rhythmically, it's a little more aggressive. Yeah. Sometimes when you do a mix for an album, maybe you get in there and you start fussing with it too much. But yeah, I thought this is a great, this is a great version. And I haven't played the song in years and years and years. Maybe I should dust it off. Pun intended. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Anything else you want to plug before we go or any other collaborations or other things that you're working on at the moment? I love collaborating. So if there's anyone listening that wants to collaborate, I think it's really interesting to get the perspective of other musicians. And, you know, today's digital technology affords you that. Having Donovan on Mallow Yellow is a coup. I'm hoping that maybe I get John Fogarty on this new version of Bad Moon Rising. You know, these are heroes of mine and their music obviously influenced me in some kind of subconscious manner. It's a great time to write and record music. It sucks that we can't make a great living at it. You can if you get on the road and tour a lot and sell merch, don't get me wrong. But the opportunity to share with musicians and artists all over the world through this digital medium is really profound. And the opportunity to get to share my story with you, Mark, and your podcast and, and get the story out there in another part of the country, which is obviously now universal once the podcast goes. So thanks. Just keep making music. 
All right, thanks, man. Here again, Art at the Speed of Life. So long. Keep rocking.
Thanks so much to Dusty, a very thoughtful writer. Great to talk to him. Again, you can learn more at DustyWrite.com. My next episode will be with the wonderful Sam Phillips. Look her up if you don't know who that is. That will not be the episode to miss. Keep abreast by subscribing to the podcast at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com, or you can get an email every time there is a new posting by subscribing at Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. Even just a dollar per episode will really help ensure that this thing keeps going. Because editing costs money, hosting the files costs money, my time costs money, everything costs money. You are listening, you are participating in it, so why not support it as well? I'm also very happy to announce that my CD, Mark Lint's Dry Folk, is now available on Spotify and iTunes and all those places. Look it up. If you look me, Mark Lintemeyer, up on Spotify, you'll see I have a Spotify playlist, Mark Lint Music, that has all my stuff that is on Spotify, which is about 50 songs now from five albums. And there's also a Spotify playlist for Nakedly Examined Music, where I track everything we cover on every episode, including the things I'm just thinking about covering. So you can get the jump on everyone else, be familiar with the music before they are, by following that playlist on Spotify. I really hope you all had a great holiday season. 2019 is going to be awesome. I've got some very good interviews coming up here. And of course, most of all, keep on music in. This is Mark Lentz Meyer signing off. I can forgive you now. 